Welcome everyone to episode 5 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and I think I've got some pretty interesting stories for you guys today. I received some pretty good feedback from last week's Halloween episode, and that one's going to be hard to beat. Also, as of recording today, I have officially launched the Ohio Unsolved Instagram page. So, please, if you haven't already, go give us a follow. We start off today's episode with a man who ate a part of his roommate's brain. So sit back, lock those doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. The first story I have for you today is about a man named David Allen Chapin. On October 3rd, 1978, Chapin and his roommate, Donald Lemming, who was also a longtime friend, were having an argument about religion. Chapin was a Baptist, and his friend claimed that he was Catholic, Buddhist, and a pagan. This clearly outranged Chapin because he suddenly pulled out a gun shot him in the eye, and killed him. He then proceeded to eat a part of his brain, which he would claim that was part of a mutual agreement that the two of them had. He then drug Lemming's body from their Milford apartment and stuffed him in the trunk of his Buick Skylark. He then drove to Raymond Walters College and attended class. While sitting in his biology class, He asked his professor if he needed a corpse to dissect. Thinking it was just a joke at first, Professor laughed. But he soon realized that Chapin wasn't joking. His professor alerted the campus security, who promptly searched his car and found the body. The police were notified and Chapin was arrested. Chapin and Lemming were childhood friends. They grew up together being best friends and next door neighbors. Their families were also close as well. The two friends moved in together while Chapin was attending classes at Raymond Walters College when the incident happened. Chapin was found guilty of murder on March 15, 1979 and sentenced to life in prison. He is serving his sentence at the Allen Correction Institute in Lima, Ohio. He's been up for parole several times and denied every single time. His most recent was in 2016. Lemming's family has reportedly received threats from prison from Chapin, and that's most likely a big part of why he hasn't been paroled. Hopefully he never gets released. If someone can kill and then eat the brain of someone that they call their best friend, they 
don't deserve to be free. He would be 66 years old today, and he could still do something horrible if he was ever released. Prison is exactly where he needs to be. Our next story is about a serial killer known as the Cincinnati Strangler. This story does include sexual assault, but I do keep details to a minimum, so listener discretion is advised. All seven murders took place between December 1965 and December 9th, 1966. On December 2nd, 1965, his first victim, 56-year-old Imogene Harrington, was brutally strangled to death in her apartment in Cincinnati. Four months later, the killer struck again. On April 4, 1966, Lois Dant was found in her ground floor apartment. She had been strangled, raped, and beaten. A friend of hers says that they were on the phone when she suddenly had a knock at the door. That was the last time anybody had heard from Lois. On June 10th, the next victim was found. 56-year-old Matilda Jeanette Messer was found in one of the city's parks. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled. Her dog was found alive, tied to a tree near her body. The next victim was 31-year-old Barbara Bowman. On August 14th, Barbara was at the bar and called for a taxi to take her home. She was then attacked by the driver only two blocks away. The driver described by witnesses as a young black man, stabbed her in the throat seven times. She died shortly after the police arrived. She was initially not included in the list of victims of the Cincinnati Strangler due to her age and the fact that she was stabbed, but witnesses at the scene were able to give a license plate number. They found that it was a cab that belonged to the Yellow Cab Company, cab number 186 but that exact taxi had been reported stolen just hours before the murder. At 31, Barbara was the youngest of the killer's victims. On October 11th, the Cincinnati Strangler killed 51-year-old Alice Hutchinson. Only nine days later, on October 20th, he killed 61-year-old Rose Wenzel, who was found beaten and strangled in her apartment. On December 9th, 81-year-old Lula Carrick was attacked in the elevator of her downtown apartment building. She had been beaten and strangled with her own stockings. Also on December 9th, shortly before the killing of Carrick, 22-year-old Sandra Chappis contacted the police and stated that a suspicious black man had followed her to her car. He then grabbed her and attempted to rape her in the stairwell of her apartment building only to be scared away by one of her neighbors. They managed to get his license plate number as he drove away. On the same day, 29-year-old Postielaski Jr. was arrested. He was living with his mother. After doing some digging into his past, the police discovered that Lasky had been arrested in 1965 for attacking women and currently on a three-year probation. They also found that from July to December of 1962, he had worked for the Yellow Taxi Company as a driver. 
the company used identical ignition keys for all of the taxis, and he also drove taxi number 186. The key was never returned to the company once he was dismissed. After his arrest, 69-year-old Dell Ernst told the police that Lasky had robbed her on October 4, 1966, as well as Virginia Hinners, who said that he had robbed her on September 21st of the same year. The murders caused a moral panic in the city. The sale of weapons and new door locks would skyrocket. Women were afraid to go out alone, and the bars and nightclubs started to close earlier than normal. They also moved Halloween activities to Sunday afternoons for two years after this incident. Based on the circumstantial evidence and eyewitness testimony, Lasky was sentenced to death by the electric chair in April of 1967. The date of his execution was set for July 8, 1968. But his lawyers had appealed the decision based on the prosecutor's office and the media having vilified him as the Cincinnati Strangler with no concrete evidence. The court rejected the appeal, and then in June 1972, the Supreme Court commuted his sentence to life in prison with the possibility of parole. For the rest of his life, Lasky was moved around from prison to prison in Ohio. He applied for parole on several occasions, and he was denied every time. In February 2007, the 69-year-old applied one last time and was denied again. They also banned him from applying until 2017. However, he died on May 29, 2007, after spending 40 years in prison. Was Posty Olasky the Cincinnati Strangler? Or did he only commit the one murder of Barbara Bowman? Many people believe that he was the Strangler, because all of the murders suddenly stopped after his arrest. But it's still possible that the real Cincinnati Strangler is out there, alive and living free. But sadly, we'll never know. Our next story takes us to a Girl Scout camp somewhere in the southeast. The exact location is unknown, but it's a mother's story of what happened on a mother-daughter camping trip with their Girl Scout troop. I'll be reading from the mother's perspective. Last summer, my daughter and I spent the weekend at a local Girl Scout camp. I don't want to name the camp and damage its reputation but something seriously spooky happened to us there. This camp is in the southeast, in a heavily wooded area near the mountains. It's a beautiful place, complete with a waterfall, pond, and scenic hiking trails. We'd gone there every year for our annual mother-daughter retreat, and before last summer, we'd never had any serious problems. The night of the incident, we made s'mores and sang silly songs around the campfire. Around 9.30, everyone headed to their cabins for bed. Because of a no-show, my daughter and I had our own cabin near the pond. There was no AC, 
so the cabin was pretty stuffy and uncomfortable. My daughter fell asleep immediately, but I tossed and turned, trying not to think about the heat. Outside, I could hear frogs by the pond and the occasional gust of wind. Around midnight, I know the time because I had just looked at my phone, the frog sounds abruptly stopped as if someone had flipped a switch. I thought it was odd, but I didn't think anything of it. Then I heard an odd rumbling in the sky. It sounded like an airplane flying high over a head, but the sound just went on and on, echoing through the hills. I don't know why, but the noise made me extremely uneasy. I tried covering my head with the pillow and convincing myself that it was just an airplane, but I somehow knew that wasn't right. After about 10 minutes, the airplane droning sound stopped just as abruptly as the frogs had. At that moment, it was dead silent. I felt like my daughter and I were the only people for thousands of miles, until someone started pounding on the cabin door. My heart started racing so fast I thought I might have a heart attack. My daughter woke up screaming and crying. As I rushed up to the top bunk, the pounding started again. Who's there? I yelled. There was no answer. So I yelled out the question again. Nothing. At this point, my daughter was totally freaking out, and I wasn't far behind. I wanted desperately to turn on the lights, but the switch was right by the door and if whoever was outside tried to come in, I'd be within easy reach. I couldn't help but think of the Oklahoma Girl Scout camp murders. Worse, I couldn't call anyone because there was no signal in the camp. After what felt like an eternity, I climbed back down from the top bunk, ran over to the switch, and turned on the lights. Once my eyes had adjusted to the glare, I noticed a weird green haze in the cabin. I hoped I was imagining things, but then my daughter asked why there was smoke in the air. I wish I could say I summoned the courage to open the door or even look out the window, but I didn't. My daughter and I sat up all night with the lights on, confused and terrified. No one pounded on the door again. The haze faded away and the frogs resumed their noise. Eventually, morning came and we left the cabin when we heard other campers walking around outside. I asked one or two of them if they had heard anything weird in the night, but they all said that they hadn't. After that, my daughter and I quickly packed up the car and left. I told the counselors we had to leave because she was sick. I have no idea what to make of any of it. The sounds, the pounding, the haze... All I know is that my daughter and I are never going back to that camp again. That was definitely a creepy story. To not only experience something like that alone in the woods, but to find out that no one else in the camp had heard anything strange themselves would definitely feel like you're going crazy and not want to go camping ever again. Have any of you had any scary encounters while camping? I'd love to hear about it and share it on a future episode. Alright everyone, that's it for today's episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. A 5-star rating helps other people find the podcast.
Join us on Facebook. We're almost at 400 people in the Ohio Unsolved group, and I would love to be at 500 people before the end of the year. Also, now you can officially join us on Instagram. I'm still working on details for the Patreon, but there will be exclusive bonus episodes, videos of actual haunted locations in Ohio, and much, much more. I'm also working on t-shirts to have for sale, as well as other items. If you have a story of your own, send it to me at ohio underscore unsolved at yahoo.com to be featured in a future episode. Next week's episode features a serial killer in Cleveland and a possible Bigfoot sighting. Be safe everyone, and make sure you lock your doors and windows and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.